Hello, hello, hello. My name is Courtney Turner, and you are listening to Bluegrass Community Foundation's Do Good Radio Hour. It's crazy to think we are already a few episodes in, and if this is your first time joining us, welcome. We have a great time learning and loving together, so if you've missed any of our earlier episodes, I encourage you to go over to Apple Podcasts, where all of our episodes are available to listen to any time you want. Otherwise, we will be right here on Radio Lex every Monday at 2 p.m. You can also find Bluegrass Community Foundation on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at BGCFKY, or visit our website, bgcf.org, for updates on the show and more do-good opportunities. Today's guest is by far one of the most spectacular, most amazing women I have ever met. Do you ever meet those people and you immediately think, if anything ever goes wrong, I know this person is the leader. I know that they are in charge. I will do whatever they tell me to do because they are running things. That's exactly how I felt meeting her. She is managing director of the Racial Equity Institute based in Greensboro, North Carolina, and we cannot be more thrilled to have her with us today. Here is Dina Hayes Green. Thank you so much. Now, I have what seems like a thousand questions for you, several of which I'm positive we will not get to in this conversation, which I'm hoping is a catalyst for you to come back and visit us sometime soon. But I want to go ahead and jump right in. Here at Bluegrass Community Foundation, we've had the wonderful opportunity to book several staff, board members, community members, for a few of the groundwater sessions. And we're definitely going to get into that. But first, I would just like to hear about your story and REI and how those two paths came to be. Yes, well, and we've enjoyed our, our partnership um, and um, having members from your community sit in on the groundwater. Um, I was, you know, over 20 years ago, a human relations commissioner in our city. And there were so many leaders in our community that had had an experience in a workshop 
uh, that was put on by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, one of the longest running anti-racist organizations in the country. And they, um, you know, after going through that, it just, it, it equipped people to have an understanding, to have some answers, to have some clarity around why we have such glaring inequities after we've made so much racial progress over the decades. And so they were very successful getting a lot of our civic leaders and community leaders and organizational leaders and system leaders in this workshop. So when I became a human relations commissioner, I was, um, I was expected to go, but I politely declined because I'm black. And so I was just like, well, I'm black. I don't need to go to an undoing racism workshop. I mean, I, I get it. Um, and I was an African-American studies major. So I just checked all the boxes, but I did offer some recommendations for people that I thought would benefit from that. But um, the organizers in our community um, that were um, getting people to have this experience insisted that I go. And I went out of respect for them and their work and it was just transformative. Uh, I knew a lot of things. I knew some dates. I knew some events. I knew some historical things that have happened, but I didn't. I didn't understand them all together. They were just so fragmented. They were just so siloed. And when when I saw them all together, and I saw how deeply entrenched they had been in our society for so long, um, it just really helped. It gave me a, a lens. You know, it was just like sort of clearing that lens so that I could see the things that are going on in our society from a different perspective. So after that, mm -hmm. I wanted everybody to go. I wanted my parents to go. I wanted my friends to go, my colleagues to go. I also was asked to run for office, to run for school, the school board. And uh, I wasn't interested in politics. I was a, a community, I had become a community organizer. And so I, I ran for school board and won. So it was, um, you know, I wanted people in education to go, to have this understanding so that we would have a shared way uh, of seeing these problems so that we could come up with um, a joint approach to solving the problems. And so I started getting people in the workshops. And after a couple of years, I was asked to join the organization as a trainer. And uh, that was a very different experience. And from there, uh, the Racial Equity Institute grew out of that grounding experience. Now, with that, there are so many different workshops that you all have. You have youth workshops and Latino challenges workshops and things like the groundwater sessions. I think a lot of times when you hear a racial equity workshop, it can feel really ambiguous. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what these workshops look like and how the groundwater approach came to be? Well, I'll just say what the Racial Equity Institute's workshop is. It's a series of, of concepts and content that has been put together from the voices of community, from the experiences of community, and um, looking at these patterns and outcomes in our systems over a period of time. And so we, we began with as we've learned a lot more about race and racism. I mean, when I was growing up, we had a very unsophisticated way of understanding that because we're not trained and educated to understand what race and racism is, that um, there's not been a formal definition or a um, sort of structured way of talking about it. And so I learned from my parents, from my community, from um, watching social media, um, you know, listening to people respond to certain events and activities. And so my understanding of race and racism, that it was about individual acts of meanness, that it was about mm -hmm. bigotry and ignorance and discrimination and bias. And what I learned in the workshop is that that's a form of racism. But what it is that, that we don't believe that our systems are filled with people that come to work and consciously 
um, work and act in ways that treat people who are different than them badly. Mm -hmm. So then what is going on when we have the outcomes that we have in our systems? And so I think we have been so um, gifted with uh, the neuroscience about how our brain works and with the scholars that have been able to weave together a history that says that some of the things, so many of the things that we're dealing with today are the residue of things that have happened decades and centuries ago. And so the workshop helps to put that into perspective. It, um, it talks about how racism biological and so many people don't know that. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's biological, but it's not. So um, we've created something and then we built a nation on that. So when we talk about structural racism, it is creating race in 1790, the Naturalization Act. This is, we're seating our first Congress in 1790. In their second session, one of the first things that they do is to set the parameters and conditions for citizenship. Mm -hmm. And it said, if you wanna be a citizen, then you have to be white. So what is white and where did it come from and who can be white and how do you decide? And then we build a court system, we build an educational system, we build our, our sectors, our public and private sectors on that construction of race. Mm -hmm. And it determines your life outcomes. It determines what you have access to and what you don't have access to. And so, um, so the workshop is really um, going through and talking about what is this thing called race and why is it a primary indicator of your outcomes in life and what's happened to people who have been assigned a race you know it's not something that I choose mm -hmm. I can't say that I'm a white female any more than you can say you're a black female mm -hmm. so it's not something I can give up it's not something I have to ask for it's not something I go into um, a building or to receive a service and I just flip a switch or wink at someone and I can activate it I could dislike it um, but what I have to understand is that it is something that has already been assigned and then um, I have the agency then to figure out how to work with others so that that is not a deciding factor in our health outcomes, our educational outcomes, what happens to us in the judicial system. That's just a, <laughs> That's little just a bit small of portion. Of yes. I think one of my favorite parts of the whole session was learning about what the analogy of the groundwater approach was and saying, we have a groundwater problem and now we need groundwater solutions. And that's really what this is, is, you know, the structures that we were built on is just completely off kilter. And so finding ways to work with that and help bring a more equitable community together. It was my favorite part. Now, in preparation for this interview, I watched a ton of your online talks. I watched a ton of your interviews that you've done. And you said something in several interviews that really stuck with me. And I would love to get your thoughts on that now. You said an organized lie is more powerful than a disorganized truth. Can you break that down for us a little bit? There's a concept that we cover in the workshop called marketedness. And I learned about this in upstate New York in a workshop from a participant who, after we go through this sort of legacy of not only what's happened, uh, but um, how it impacts our lives today. So marketedness is this concept that speaks to the relationship between things that are marked and unmarked. And uh, again, this is like putting on a pair of glasses and just seeing the world from a totally different perspective. Um, so when I think about it, I was just telling someone this the other day. Um, I live in North Carolina. We have a lot of historically black colleges and universities and um, and we have a lot of historic neighborhoods. But the historic neighborhoods where black people live are called historically black neighborhoods. 
So then I, I named a couple of other neighborhoods, suburban neighborhoods in our community. And I said, what are those communities called racially? And he's, he just said, well, they're, that's just the, this name. You know, it's the name of the community. It's just where people live. And I said, well, if this is a historically black community, what's, what makes it historically black? The reason we have historically black neighborhoods is because we had historically white neighborhoods that had racial covenants that legally excluded people from living there if they weren't white. But that becomes unmarked and invisible. It's like our historically black colleges and universities. The only reason we have them is because of the other schools. So I asked people, Courtney, what do we call the other schools? So a lot of younger people say, we call them PWIs. And I said, well, what's that? And they say, it's a predominantly white institution. And I said, well, there's a mis mismatch there. Why is this historically black? And that's predominantly white. So, you know, to be consistent, either this is predominantly black and that's predominantly white, or this is historically black. That means that's historically white. Mm -hmm. The only reason we have historically black colleges and universities is because we had historically white colleges and universities that legally could exclude people from having access uh, to admissions on the, um, at, at those on those campuses. So when that becomes invisible, then we get a, a, a we, we get a picture of history that is incomplete. And that incomplete history makes it very difficult for us to understand why we see the things that we see in our society. So the organized lie is, it's like, well, this is just a university and it appears that everybody had access to it because it's not mm -hmm. racially identified. Here's a church, here's a business, here's a neighborhood, here's a cemetery, here's a hospital. But when we look back in history, they were historically white hospitals, historically white cemeteries, historically white colleges and universities, historically white churches, historically white neighborhoods. And when, when that's invisible, then it's hard to see why is race such an issue? And it's just like, well, I, I hate that it is, but it is, and here's why. So the organized lie is, is that we've given a picture of history that is incomplete. And it has been so organized that it is taught in our schools, that it is um, you know, embedded into the ways that we honor and celebrate certain events and activities in our society, whether it's the 4th of July or Columbus Day and all. So it's such a well-organized, incomplete history. And so the, the truth is very disorganized. And so our work at the Racial Equity Institute is just putting together the truth of our history so that we have a better understanding about why we have the outcomes that we have today. Now, REI has worked with tons of organizations and massive corporations. You've worked with us here at BGCF. You've worked with Walmart, which is massive. You've worked with social and criminal justice organizations. And I know from experience in my short career that there are many organizations and corporations who say, we don't really need racial equity training because we either have a new DEI director on board or we have diversified the complexion of the people on our staff. What would you say to those people who aren't really sure of the benefits of a training like REI offers? Well, it, we say how you diagnose a problem determines how you solve it. And when we don't understand race and racism and we don't understand, again, the sort of um, the, the history that has shaped so much of uh, how we're differently situated today, then the problem seems to be a lack of inclusion. Mm -hmm. So then we go about the business of including people. 
We also leave out the contextual information about why people aren't represented in the first place, because when we don't do that, that can build resentment. It feels like, why is there such a special focus on that group? Why is there such a special focus on um, that population or those um, you know, individuals um, or people with that identity or experience? Because it just seems like that's unfair. So when you live in an unmarked reality, an unmarked identity, um, that it doesn't feel like you got anything because of the color of your skin. And and it feels unfair for other people to get that. And so, um, and so there's been a lot of pressure on people to, um, you know, to um, include people who represent and who share an experience with people other than, um, you know, whoever is in the organization. So people go out and they get, you know, the, you know, the Noah's Ark, the, the rainbow, you know, just all of the people that represent all of those identities. And sometimes that can be a mask that could really hide uh, the inequities that exist inside of an organization. Um, and it can give a picture uh, of, of inclusion that's not actually happening. Um, but I understand that it feels right and it looks right that we should have diversity in our society. We have to ask ourselves, why don't we? Why isn't this organic? Why do we have to go and create um, uh, offices and agencies and departments um, that are recruiting and helping to retain um, people who are not um, traditionally and historically represented in our institution. So the, the why is important, but it's not enough just to bring people in. It's like, what are the experiences that they're having in the institution? Um, whose orientation and perspective um, has helped shape that organization? And how do we think about that? We caution organizations at the Racial Equity Institute um, to be thoughtful about the environment that you're inviting people to, because you know, as it as it might feel normal to you, it might be countercultural to uh, um, other people. And you said the why was important, and that's so true. And I think that sometimes when people take trainings like this, they say the information that I'm getting is invaluable. I'm just, I'm going to sit with this, and now I feel empowered to make change. What kind of change or outcomes have you all seen from organizations that you work with who take a session with you all? Well, there's there's some uh, concrete information out there about uh, the experience that people have in the workshop. Um, and it is it has been so overwhelmingly positive because people come in with a lot of anxiety. There's a lot mm -hmm. of fear mongering. There's a lot of confusion out there. People come in um, already, um, you know, believing and assuming that they're going to have a certain experience in the workshop. And then they come out finding it's not like that, because our goal is we say at the Racial Equity Institute, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And what we want to mm -hmm. do is we want to build a multiracial that we want to be a part of building a multiracial democracy, um, you know, that we've lived in a multicultural um, nation for centuries, but it's been under sort of a monocultural, um, you know, sort of authority and, and culture. And so what we're, what people leave the workshop with is a deeper understanding about the, the, the role that race plays in our society. And there's so many changes. It's the conversations I have with my children. It's the way I watch the news. It's how I read the newspapers, what I choose to read after that. It's the way that I serve, um, you know, in the boards and committees and panels that I'm on. Um, there, there are other decisions. It's where I'm going to bank. It's where I'm going to send my children to school. It's what neighborhood I'm going to live in. It's the play um, circles that I, um, you know, that I organize for my children. So they're personal, uh, professional, um, community, um, civic, faith um, decisions that people make um, after the after the workshop. Now, I think 
there are very few times in life where you meet somebody where you're like, if the world is ending, this person is in charge. And that's how I feel about you. So <laughs> I think it would be a great disservice to not just myself, but the people who are listening, if I didn't mention that, you know, the world in the country that we're living in right now seems very uncertain and very scary. What advice do you have for people who might feel a little lost right now? And how are you choosing to look forward in this season of uncertainty? I look for Courtney during these times. I look for um, all of the um, things that inspire me. I go back and look at our history that um, we have, people have faced brutal terror before in our history and they were so determined and so committed um, for things to be different uh, that they just persevered. And I'm so grateful for people who did that. And so today I look to organizations like Red Wine and Blue. It was um, an organization that was started by a group of white women in Ohio that were just so upset that so many white suburban moms, um, you know, were had had voted uh, in the last election and were, um, you know, joining this 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 worldview, this rhetoric, this ideology of. Uh, of difference. And they were really concerned about that. And now they're like 300 strong. It's this sort of multiracial mm. uh, group of women across the country that I'm so inspired by, because we know that racial justice is American justice and American justice uh, benefits all of us. And that is that is our goal. So that um, we know that when we improve the outcomes for people who are having the worst outcomes, it improves those systems for everyone. It improves our healthcare system. It means we all live longer and live healthier lives. It means our educational system is stronger and our students are going to be able to, um, to thrive and to lead in a global society. And so I look for inspiration. Mallory McMurrow, I just love what she was talking about, her viral takedown and asking us to rethink wokeness. I love Angela Glover Blackwell, who's been talking about trans transformative solidarity um, for a thriving multiracial democracy. So I don't read negative news. Mm. Uh, I just look for uh, the inspiration, those that are just standing on the front line and persevering and organizing. And so those are the things that I, that I look for. How do you step away from all of that negativity? Is that a, a break from your screens? Is that a meditation in the morning? What's your go-to practice for that? One of the things that came out of our workshops, um, you know, myself, I was just like, well, what do we do after this? And there were a group of people who um, came together after, you know, their workshop and um, they committed to, um, you know, sort of debriefing and getting together on a monthly basis and talking about what to do with this information. And so they were, um, you know, they were meeting and after the workshop, they invited, you know, the participants of the workshop to come and join them. And so I joined that organization and it was, it's been going on for about 20 years. And we, um, you know, we think together, we learn together, um, we strategize together, we organize together. And it is, it is my community, you know, it's a multiracial community of people who share an understanding of race and racism and how it hurts everyone. Um, and it's so beautiful to see, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> white male lawyers and um, and black businesswomen and young black activists all together on that mm -hmm. front line, 
um, you know, because this is our picture of what America looks like, is that we can, that we have so much in common and we build on that. And so, uh, so that's where I go to. That's my community. I'm also that. involved in, I learned so much from the workshop about, um, you know, historic um, Black communities and um, what people had to do in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s as the Federal Housing Administration was, um, you know, um, not getting out loans uh, to Black people, I think uh, between 1934 and 1962, out of $120 billion in loans, less than 2% went to, to Black people. Um, and this was pretty much the GI Bill benefits, and people are just stunned to find out that we also had racial discrimination in our military. And so, um, you know, people had to figure out how they were going to build healthy, supportive communities. And um, so I, I look for those for inspiration. So about 20 years ago, my husband and I moved to a low-income Black community um, in Greensboro. And um, we just envisioned, like they did 50, 60 years ago, what a community could look like if we were a part of it. And um, so we bought our home and then his property, you know, it was abandoned, it was neglected, it was foreclosed in our community. Um, then we started recruiting our friends to come back and say our schools mm -hmm. are, our schools and our communities are going to be as strong as our, our presence there. And so we've got to be here. This is how we deal with public safety. This is how we deal uh, with the quality of housing. This is how we deal with sh having shared resources for other people in our neighborhood. So it's been an amazing transformation. And um, that's been inspired by uh, Theaster Gates, who's done a very similar thing in Southside Chicago and Majora Carter, who's done a lot of environmental justice work in the Bronx and New York. And so I just look for those things, those inspirational things, those transformative things, those amazing things that people are doing them are doing, and we just start doing them. We are going to be doing something that we like to call the BGCF Fast Facts, where I'm just going to give you a few questions. You are going to give me the first thing that pops into your head without any explanation. Are you ready? Okay, great. I'm ready. What are you reading right now? I am reading Audre Lorde's Learning from the 60s. I read that over and over and over. She talks about how complex movements are for liberation. So I constantly need that. What are you watching right now? I'm watching Aftershock right now. Aftershock mm -hmm. is a documentary, a powerful documentary about maternal and child health. And um Something that I heard um, in one of the screenings that said, uh, because of um, race and maternal and child health, a black woman delivering a baby is similar to a black man at a traffic stop. And that just gave mm -hmm. me, you know, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. What are you listening to right now? I'm listening to Angela Glover Blackwell um, in a, a session that she did for Bioneers. I'm watching again, uh, Mallory McMurrow. I go and listen to her speech over and over for inspiration and, and something that I'm very proud of. What are you eating right now? Oh, a combination of things. I love these plant-based pork skins. I gave a pork years ago, but I really miss pork skins. So they have plant-based pork skins that I just love. So, oh so that's God. what I do. I know Where I have a lot of- Where do you get those at? You can get them at different stores. You can get them online. So I have a subscription. So they're delivered every, every month. Okay. Oh. <laughs> what are you most scared of? 
I'm scared of people who are being scared. I'm scared of people who are being frightened into believing that their future and that their children's future is being robbed by immigrants and 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 and, and black people and um, you know and Jewish people. I'm scared that people are being scared by that. What are you most proud of? I'm proud of the people who um, are not going to let that extremist group, that extremist worldview um, take over. I'm proud of people that are just locking arms and again, standing solid and firm on the front lines. Who do you look up to? I look up to Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. uh, for inspiration. There's so many people that I look up to, but she's just the one that, uh, because I just can't fathom, I just can't imagine, um, you know, the um, you know, just what it took for her to do what she did. And I have to remember that because it can be really scary. It feels bad. Mm -hmm. It feels bad when you get emails. It feels bad when you um, when you get text messages. It feels bad when people are tweeting things that are untrue and harmful. And so um, so I need to constantly look uh, again for a source of inspiration. What are you most looking forward to? I'm looking forward to being a part of this movement this movement for justice, this movement for democracy. Why do you love your community? I love my community because of the, the strength and because of the commitment. And, um, you know, I, I think about the Grinch who stole Christmas. And I remember after the Grinch stole everything, right? And little Cindy in Whoville, you know, just sort of comes out and they just sing anyway. And they just mm -hmm. sort of pray in there um, because I think we have so much to be grateful for. And I live in gratitude. I live in gratitude for things that have been done. And, um, and I believe so much in our ability to be able to create the kind of world that we, that we want to live in. Why do you love yourself? Because I'm amazed at how I, I'm amazed at how we were created. I'm just like skin. How did we get skin? And, 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 and how do our bodies function? The human anatomy and just being alive and being in this form is just, um, it's just divine. And so, um, and I would never not love something that was created, um, you know, that sort of um, divine design and, um, mm -hmm. you know, from God, from um, all of the ways in which people, um, you know, love and lift up um, the creator and the universe. Mm -hmm. Last question. Where can people follow you? Where can people get more information on REI? How can people stay connected? Well, you can find us uh, at the racialequityinstitute.org. We have a Facebook page. We have um, a um, other social media um, uh, platforms that people can find us on. You can find me on, um, you know, on the Racial Equity Institute and on my Facebook page and other social media platforms. And um, I'm just part of a, uh, again, an anti-racism community and people that know um, that we have to address this issue. It has been passed down and passed down and passed down and we need to free our children up and our young people up so that they won't have the baggage from our generation, that they will be free to, um, to deal with the problems of their time and not our unfinished business. Ms. Dina, it has been such an honor to talk to you again if the world ends, I'm coming to your house. You are in charge for the rest of forever. And I will feel so safe <laughs> at your house. So that's where I'm coming, just so you know. 
<laughs> but I think that and you what, would be absolutely welcome. <laughs> thank you. I think what REI is doing is really changing the world. So I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me and doing all of the work that you all do. It is so much appreciated. Well, I am proud of you, Courtney, and all of what made you who you are. And so uh, I'm with you. You are absolutely welcome in my community and in my home. And I'll share my pork skins with you. <gasps> Thanks. <laughs> okay, see you next time. Bye, Dina. Thanks, Courtney. Bye-bye. The 12th annual Good Giving Challenge kicks off November 29th, and this year is going to be the biggest year yet. Hosted by Bluegrass Community Foundation and Smiley Pete Publishings, the Good Giving Challenge is an online giving challenge for local nonprofits that has brought Central and Appalachia, Kentucky together to raise $17 million for over 100 local nonprofits. That's a lot of money, y'all. If you want to learn more about the Good Giving Challenge and how you can participate, visit bggives.org. That's bggives.org. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Do Good Radio Hour, brought to you by Bluegrass Community Foundation. We'll be back next week right here on Radio Lex, or you can listen to us anytime on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at BGCFKY, or visit us on our website at BGCF.org to stay updated on all of the latest giving and do-good opportunities in our community. Until next time, I'm Courtney Turner. Do good and be well. You are listening to the Do Good Radio Hour on Radio Lex, WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington. Our theme song is Happy Tune, written and performed by Brother Smith. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Radio Lex, its board of directors, or Bluegrass Community Foundation. The views expressed are solely my own and the guests'.